0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm.
1: Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc and I'm here with John Boudreau, who is a professor of management organization at USC at the Marshall School. Also the director of the Center for Efficient Organizations. Author of multiple books beyond HR, retooling HR, lead the work, reinventing jobs. And then also most recently, this one, Work Without Jobs. Welcome, John. Thanks. Appreciate it, Gregory. Pleasure to be here. So now look, you're you're in the HR field. And you know, I remember it was a couple years ago that I proposed to my administration at, at my school that I offer a class on HR. And they thought I was nuts. They thought, who's interested in HR? I mean, this was certainly academics didn't seem to be interested in it. They thought business students weren't interested in it. I think the common perception was that HR was all about making sure that everybody got their benefits and, you know, that went through their their sexual harassment training and and so forth. But, you know, my experience with business people was that, you know, people was their biggest both problem and, and opportunity. Most companies derive most of their value from the people that they have and, you know, making sure you have the best people and also making sure that you get the most out of your people. That seems to be the biggest focus of executive leaders. So first of all, why HR? Why are you doing HR? And then was this a bit of a struggle to kind of make everybody understand how important it was or have, have business people kind of known all along that this was like super important? Well, that's a really interesting
0: question that will let me do a little bit of my history, Gregory. Thank you. Kind of dude, Let me work forward a little bit rather than backwards from my MBA. So we'll get to my various teaching MBA at the University of Southern California. And then also the the reason I was jointly appointed to the Center for Effective Organization there. So the way my career worked, I, I got interested in people and work and work relationships as an undergraduate, actually, where I live now in New Mexico at New Mexico State University I had two terrific mentors. And I'm, I'm in these classes and I'm reading these books about what was then called something like the Japanese management approach. And so I did, I did an undergraduate business degree, so I'm doing accounting and operations and all that stuff. But I'm finding myself really drawn to these stories about the factory forward in Japan, where they've given these workers the ability to pull a cord and stop the line, and they're talking to them about the ideas that come up during their time at work. And that, that turned out to be the thing. As fascinating as accounting and accounting history was. I I became quite fascinated with its relationship and this idea of work and work changing. And so that's really what led them to say, well, there is a field that is about this and it's it's a blend of industrial psychology and also business. And and very astutely, they said one thing they said was, you know, you're very good in school. And while that doesn't predict everything, one of the things it predicts is you'd probably be a good percussion. So that, that if you have any interest in that kind of a job, you'd probably be pretty good at it based on what we see. So, okay, where, how do I do that? Find a program that'll let you get an MBA on the way to a PhD in HR, because HR is a field that will lead grounding in business. And that was extraordinarily astute. And it's not it that I'm the only one, but in some ways I'm a little unusual of having gotten an MBA at Purdue and then a PhD at Purdue. Okay. So now, so I get my PhD and then I start looking for jobs and it turns out that that in the world of academia, HR was an up and coming discipline in the late seventies, early eighties. All again, because of a lot of attention to these new ways of working, employee engagement, new ways of designing organization. Texas Instruments at the time was doing a lot of stuff with it. AP was pretty famous with engaging workers and that sort of thing. A real move away from traditional work. I ended up at a place called the Industrial Labor Relations School at Cornell University. Now that entire school is organized around the work relationship, so the economists are labor economists, the historians or labor historians, or the um, designers or organization designers, and one of the key departments in that was called human resource management. So honestly, from the very beginning, my academic bubble was very oriented towards human resources, and indeed in, in industrial psychology programs, in psychology programs, this human resource connected was one of the few connections to real business. So for 22 years, I was engaged with a group of faculty in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell that were all looking at the work relationship, everything from union to the design of organizations. Over time, I ended up beginning to gravitate and have one foot in the business school because the engineers and the operations researchers over there were beginning to look more carefully at the human application of the way work was designed. And I chaired a PhD committee or two and got a chance to work with some really great professors, largely in the operations research group. I ended up being an associate editor at operations journal, again, because there was that beginning of the evolution. And it's about that time that for a lot of family and other reasons, I decided we needed to move west. And at that point, the Center for Effective Organizations, Ed Lawler and Tom Cummings in the department of MOR at Marigal. Then we think we can find a place for this guy with one foot in a research center about organizations and one foot teaching MBAs. The MBA class was not called human resources for just the reasons you said. The MBA class by that time now was called strategic advantage to people. And the first questions I had for MBAs, with all due respect to your question, it isn't really so much where you create the most value. It's where you could enhance the value of, of your organization and or your, you know, you or your career the most. So my first question on the board is where do you think is the greatest opportunity for inventive value creation in the world of money or in the world of people and the discussion revealed, which is something I brought, I got from one of my key co-authors, good friends and colleagues, Pete Ramstad, who is an accountant and a finance expert. The market for people, the market that encompasses the work relationship so much more embryonic. It's so much younger. We know so much less about it than markets for things like money and operations. And and so those markets can create value. But when you pose it that way for MBAs, they realize that not only is it one of the biggest dilemmas in their career, but that it is such an embryonic market that there's probably so many more places for invention that could uniquely create value in the world of people and the and organization and their relationships than there is in the more mature markets so of things like money and products and that kind of thing. Well,
1: and I think that's why we've seen a rebranding, right? We hear about things like, you know, talent management or, you know, people operations or employee experience, right? Anything, anything but HR, right? You know, you, it,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: And even when you try to say strategic HR, it's like, wait, hold on that. That seems like an oxymoron. So let's just come up with a, a new branding. But for me, you know, as, as an economist, I mean, I find that all of the, the kind of new initiatives they, they just seem so obvious and intuitive. So if you think about operations research, you know, you're thinking about what are you trying to do here, what's your output, and then how do you optimize your output relative to your input, or even in your most basic economics models, where you think about kind of labor and capital, right? You know, you think of these things as, as flows, but then when you go to kind of ordinary people out in the field, they think about these things called jobs. And these jobs, and I think the purpose of your most recent book, and, and also the Reinventing Jobs book, is to highlight this whole idea of jobs. The notion of a job is really holding us back. It's like a component mindset, right? It's this belief that you know, the production process is broken up in a way that is, that is rigid, that is predefined by these portfolio boundaries, right? That you, know, you either have a job or you don't have a job. And, and in the popular conception, when people are talking about, oh, we're losing jobs to China or, you know, to the robots or, or whatever, I've always found it a little puzzling because I've never thought of myself as having a job. I've always thought of myself as doing things and achieving things. But then again, as an academic, you're in a very unique you know place. But even when I worked at a, at a restaurant, you know, I remember my very first job when I was I just used the word job, but you know, my very first work when I was outside of the house was, was at a restaurant and, you know, I was hired as a busboy. There was this tension between people who were very protective, like I'm the waiter, you're the busboy, I do this, you do that. But at the end of the day, we needed to make sure that the customer was happy. And so all those distinctions kind of dissolved and, and ultimately the managers who knew what they were doing, they didn't have these preconceived notions about who did what. And they kind of let things flow and blend and, and change over time. So how much of us rethinking this whole concept of a job is kind of rooted in common sense? And even like going back to Frederick Taylor, who you mentioned in, in the book is kind of, and we'll have to talk about him because his, his legacy is, there's multiple sides to it. But how much of this, this reinvention is just kind of getting basic economics and, and operations research and bringing it to the fore and, and applying it in the modern, in the modern corporation?
0: Uh, a couple of interesting points there. So first of all, I think you're, your intuition and your experience was very common. There's a, a whole area of research in the world of industrial psychology and, and HR that is about what's called work crafting. And that's been around for a while. And, and indeed your idea is that individuals who are doing work will craft that work, will do what they can to make that work fit all kinds of goals. How they can be most productive, how they can be most satisfied how they can get rid of the things that are not, that either are not productive, not fulfilling them, et cetera. So you're not wrong that this has always been going on. So if you have a job as a bus boy, but something needs to be done in a good restaurant, you'll have the freedom to say, I'm going to help out. That cat becomes a part of what you do. And it's not in your job description, et cetera. In an ideal operations research world, I suppose engineers would say, well, we start with the work, we design the process. Then we look at what human elements need to be done, and then we craft jobs out of those human elements. And if our process changes, we're going to go back and we're going to remake the work that people do. We're going to move people around. They're going to to the work, et cetera. And the reality is that's a very unusual situation, no matter how well the equations and operations research work out. I remember the first dissertation I shared at Cornell was an investigation of how the behavior of the person next to you affects your work, even on an assembly line, and how subtly people actually adjust their work to fit the work they see coming down the line, two stations down. There's it's a big pile up, they work one way. If there's not very much there, they work another way. So I think the actuality is that job, I mean, you you said it, we talk about work as a job, and you use the word job to be synonymous with work. And I do think that, that the bulk of the systems, the bulk of the social thinking that we have now, about work is not work defined like, well, they're a professor and they do stuff, or they're in a restaurant and they do stuff, but it's work defined in the jobs and, and things like pay and career path and all that stuff are related to the Virtually every count of work that you get, we even created it, an engineer probably created the idea of a full-time equivalent because the system over here requires that we think of jobs of work in chunks called jobs. That if I have work that isn't done. I need to aggregate it into what we'll call job equivalent or FTEs or something like that. So I think the actuality is probably closer to the engineer and certainly the HR folks and leaders and others tend to think in terms of job instinctively when they think about work. And very often, it's the only way available to think about work is that I can't go hire someone until we have a job. I can't staff your Denied process until we try to work into jobs.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's the the psychology part where individuals identify themselves with their job and what they they do, and and they can sometimes be very. There could be a lot of inertia around how you think of yourself. Part of it seems to be about the the systems, right? So how companies do their recruiting and how they think about their employee status and so forth. And then part of it does seem to be also regulatory, right? Like we have this idea that you either have a job or you don't have a job and then you get the benefits or you don't get the benefits. And of course, all of this is being disrupted with the gig economy and so forth. But those things basically shape how we we think about work. And then they also kind of create frictions when it comes to, you know, redefining work. We're going to jump into obviously how you need to rethink this as a basket of tasks that, you know, you can put stuff in and take stuff out and so forth. But in terms of how we got to where we are now, is it regulatory? Is it firm level institutional frameworks and systems, or is it kind of this psychology of how people think about the way they interact with the world?
0: Well, I I would say if we start now, Gregory, it's all. So I think they, it really is all the, I think if we go historically, and that's always a little dangerous because you and, you and I worked there, well, we talked about industrial revolution, but you had a, a wonderful interview with Alex Su-Jung Kim Tang a few weeks ago about rap and about changing the thought about working harder is better. And he mentioned the idea of this legacy where we evolved to a situation where it was, it, it was efficient and often effective actually to put people to bring people to the capital, to bring people to the factory, rather than having them working at home, et cetera. And once you did that, I think that was the evolution of, well, we've got to have a joke that we can call this thing now. You know, we can't, everybody just isn't producing textiles in their home or whatever it was, they now do this thing in this space at a certain time. And it lets it all fit together. We can't run this thing. let's call it an assembly line. So I think that's where it started. There needed to be chunks of work. And it, it evolved into, well, what's a good chunk? And somehow or other, we ended up with 40 hour weeks and that sort of thing. Then I think regulation and social thinking followed that. Unionization became unionization about jobs. In this country in particular, the social decision was to let corporations be the safety net in many ways, very different from European and, and some other regions where the social safety net is available everywhere. everyone. So you kind of had, well, the work gets choked in a certain way. Engineers, HR people, leaders learn that. It becomes their habit to think in terms of choking it that way. It works pretty well in a world where you have going to come and we've got to define the assembly line. Regulation unionization starts to use job as an equivalent word and concept for work. And so our legislation revolves around that. There's an assumption that we can tell if you're employed, if you have an employment contract and a job, and then the people doing the work are working in that system. And they desire a definition for a job. I was just talking to a very good colleague about his experiment with getting rid of job title, specifically to sort of free up its ability to do anything and people can move. And it's just too difficult. The society, you know, for a question you got is what am I going to put on my LinkedIn profile? If you don't give me a job title, the world doesn't see the work I do until I can title it, you know? And usually that title look something like a job. So well, I think it's all three and it's kind of, it's all looked wallpaper, Gregory. We're so embedded in it that to speak of work, you instinctively use the word job. It's that embedded in our thinking.
1: Well, you know, when we talk about companies now, and I'm usually working at the level of corporate strategy and it's common now to talk about disruption and saying, you know, whatever you're doing now, you're not going to be doing it tomorrow, right? And if you're, if you're good at something now, then it's going to be irrelevant tomorrow. And so you have to be constantly changing what it is you do. And and sometimes when I teach strategy, I then kind of conclude the class and I say, hey, you as an individual, you have to adopt this thinking and you have to, whatever you're good at now, you're not going to be good at later. And when I talk to folks in, in strategy, kind of when I talk to about the the reason why managers oftentimes find this a little bit disturbing is that it seems like people have a, a desire for some kind of stability. It's a little bit nerve wracking to to be constantly going in every day and, and on Tuesday, you're going to be doing something a little bit different than what you did on, on Monday. I mean, is there, is there a natural human tendency to just want to rinse, wash, repeat, or is that kind of an artifact of how we have been organizing things? We organize things so that people know to expect continual change. Will people be more willing to kind of embrace it and say, Hey, this is super exciting or, or is that just a human tendency to want predictability and repeatability and fear this constant change?
0: We're getting in an area where I'll disclaim and say, I'm not super expert on all the studies on there. But I think we could say that, first of all, there is a human need for some kind of routine and some kind of predictability. And, you know, I think the evidence would be that humans don't naturally gravitate to a place where there's huge amounts of uncertainty. I would also say that the research probably shows that there's a balance there. That, you know, obviously at one end, it becomes mundane. It becomes mind-numbing and boring. At the other end, it's so chaotic and you're so stressed, and, and, and particularly with carries consequences. There's a fear of the downside. Okay. And I think that's also true. So it's somewhere in the middle, right? And one of my favorite metaphors for work, and I started using this was, oh God, probably five or seven years ago, whenever I had to switch from, I think it was the iPhone 10 to the iPhone 11. And the reason I'll tell you why that, that may means something. There's a book. So the idea is that we're. The thing I, that I pay attention to is perpetually obsolete and perpetually being upgraded. So every day automation, for example, can do a little bit more of the work of most people. You know, I mean, I get you today and, you know, but it's there. Professor jobs have changed a lot because of automation. If we were to go back, even if you will way back to the time before Google and libraries and all that, and it was the library where we went. Not enough. Yeah, Not uh, enough. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Maybe one would say perhaps, perhaps there needs to be, and I think COVID really accelerated and eliminated that That the you know, the traditional academic setup was really institutionally and almost unconsciously based on an assumption of a classroom where students show up. So think about it that way. Work is perpetually upgraded and perpetually obsolete. Now, where is the, where, where we possibly manage a world where things are perpetually upgraded and perpetually obsolete? Well, almost every other place in your life. You know, and my, my metaphor was the iPhone and I, I have this picture of the iPhone without a headphone jack, where well, that headphone jack went away. Since I do a lot of this kind of work, that was a big deal for me. That was, I mean, you know, I had a great system. It's all I knew. would have plugged that thing in and I had a power cord. And then I tried the dual plug it and that didn't work. And they were very clunky. And you know, I realized I'm going to have to go with headphones that don't connect to my phone and that means I'm going to need to learn Bluetooth now. The iPhone had been being upgraded the whole time I owned. It still is being upgraded the whole time I own it. But there are those moments where the upgrades have come to a point where you have to change your work in a fundamental way. Those are often tectonic, difficult moments in the world of work. Robots coming in, AI changing entirely a call center set up, et cetera. I think COVID gave us the opportunity to accelerate by about a decade, the ability of people to understand that work is changing that way and that see it in their own life. So I think there is a desire for stability for a lot of reasons. And yet there is this underlying acceleration of work being like technology, that, that analogy of being perpetually upgraded and obsolete comes from a book to me from a book called The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly, where he talks about technology evolution and how that's just a fact. Everything is simultaneously obsolete and upgraded. Now, I do think that the world of work and leaders and workers and others involved in it will need to accept that in a more tangible way. One implication, for example, is that leaders and workers working together would start way earlier to anticipate automation. So that the hamburger swiping robot appeared on the scene years before. It's ever practical to deploy it. Now, one choice is we wait until it arrives at our door. And then we say to our workers, well, here's the hamburger flipping robot. Sorry, but you've got to adjust and we've got to adjust. And it's a big, lots of layoffs, et cetera. Or leaders and workers get used to say, well, if the hamburger flipping robot is appearing now in the press, then it's going to be here. It's inevitable, so to speak, that our work is going to change. And what goes with it a lot, and then I'll I'll give you a a word in edgewise here, is there's a sense of trust, especially in a relationship that is necessary for people to accept uncertainty and, and believe that they're going to get through it. So one of the areas that I'm working on now, one of the research areas, is a, a concept with Ben Schneider called work automation climate. And that involves the belief that your organization kind of knows what it's doing supports you, adapt towards, et cetera, to the idea that work automation is coming. If you don't have that, or whether you believe the people you're working with are not good at it, they're not paying attention to it, they don't care about it. Then this uncertainty you talked about, this perpetual change can be a real threat and people can resist it quite strongly. I mean, the first ATMs, the workers of the bank went out and they poured honey into the keyboard in London of that ATM that was sitting outside. Luddites. Yeah. It's like the Luddites and that's a very rational response to a belief that these changes are going to be harmful. They'll need to be harmful, but that belief can lead to this maybe over, you know, suboptimal desire for stability in a world where things are changing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I use this metaphor of software updates all the time. And, you know, if you think about a Tesla, it used to be that you would buy the 83 Mercedes and then you'd buy the 85 Mercedes and you buy the 87 Mercedes, right? And then if you wanted to improve it in any way, you had to kind of replace it. And now, you know, you just kind of wake up in the morning and you've got a new Tesla in your driveway, right? Because you updated overnight. Great example. But when we think about updates of, say, user interfaces or whatever, you know, some people think it's kind of old versus young. And the old people are like, oh, what are, you, what are you doing there? Changed everything, right? I was supposed to adapt. And the young people are like fine with it. But but I, I kind of, I'm, I'm a little dubious of that. I think it's more like, are you more familiar with constant change versus are you less familiar? So even, you know, young people, when Facebook would bring out a new user interface or whatever, they would get upset 10 years ago, but now nobody gets upset because everyone's kind of, they kind of know it and they expect it and they they figure, you know, hey, last time they changed it, it actually turned out, pretty well, whatever they're doing, they must know what, what they're doing. And, and so it is a question of familiarity and then you're right. I mean, a question of trust, right? Do these people know what they're doing? I had the chief operating officer for UPS come and speak in my class about, I don't know, seven years ago. And he talked about how, when they released Orion, the uh, traveling salesman software, right, which cost them, I don't know, a billion dollars to develop. And, and the drivers initially were, I think, insulted it wasn't just that they were worried about losing their job. I think they were worried about losing their expertise, the the pride that they took in doing a job well. And he said that the most difficult thing was not the development of the software, but getting everybody to embrace it and see it as a way for them to do their jobs better, rather than to see it as a way of mechanizing them or, or dehumanizing them. And, and it, w- it required, you know, a lot of Conversations. They did some competitions and bake-offs, and kind of made it into you know an exercise, and you know made it fun. And but I guess once you have that trust, then you can accelerate the pace of change.
0: Yeah, I think trust and, and a number of other things. So just think about the things you've talked about. If we're going to be in a relationship, like a worker and their leader, or a worker and their company, there needs to be some trust that the other party isn't out to get you, or that the other party hasn't left aside your considerations in the interest of. Their own. Like, we're going to automate as fast as we possibly can. And we hope you can, you know, because that's going to be more profitable. It's the only way we can survive as a company. And sorry that you as a worker are going to need to adjust. And if you can't, we're going to need to find somebody that, you know, that deal can feel exploitive. It can feel very attractive. Another kind of deal, I'm still saying in my presentations and lectures, I'm waiting for a company to say, we will automate only as quickly as we can and have our workers keep up. So we'll delay automation until we can prepare the workers to to do this drive with Orion, to be ready for it. Now, I think in the long run, operations research-wise, the kind of productivity you get, if you bring a worker along, the kind of design of the work you could do, if you had prepared those workers to work with automation, is likely to be far more productive than the kind of work you're gonna get if you do the automation independently. And then you now have to retrofit the work into, into that. And so I haven't yet seen a company say, you know, we've determined the equation is we will blow automation if need be to bring our workers along. But I think that's sort of the kind of thing that people need to be wrestling with. So it is trust. It is also practice and skill, like your Facebook example. So one of the reasons that we've all, you know, tip-blowers after a while, they get accustomed to, to, they learn the skills they need to deal with the upgrades, just like the iPhone, just like everything. So there's also a skill in being flexible, a skill in sort of weathering the automation evolution, because as we talk about in reinventing jobs, so two points on this, one is, so how do you do it? How do you sort of get ready for this? Because a lot of talk about a skills-based economy, upskilling, et cetera, et cetera, that's one thing, one way to prepare. This research that Ben Snyder and I are working on is based on fundamental psychology, which says being capable of only one element of being prepared to perform or to, to out of work. Another one is being motivated and another one is having the opportunity. So there's, there's a need to bring all of those things along and up my focus on upskilling has a danger of missing the other two support by supervisors, motivation, et cetera. So there's a skill in learning to be agile. And then the other point I would make is one of the things, back to your job point, one of the things that we discovered as we wrote these books and looked at the research on how automation is evolving is that to understand it, the researchers need to take apart the job and look at the task within the job. If you look at the MIT research, McKinsey research, et cetera, they all have a common methodological realization that you can't talk about automation in terms of jobs lost. And you can't see it. So you have to break the jobs apart, see it at the task role. So that for those drivers, for example, there are things that a ride is going to do that they are never going to do again. You know, might be planning routes, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them were really good at that. But some of those human drivers, that's what they were really good at with kind of knowing the traffic on a given day and all that. Well, sorry, but at that task in your job. We need to all recognize that it's going to get replaced. Now, what are the other tasks in the work now where Orion might make you better than you ever were? But it's at that task level. And the job of driver, think about what the job of driver at UPS looks like now versus what it looked like pre-Orion. You almost need a new name for this thing. You know, it's all, you have to got traffic, a controller or something like that. It's much more sophisticated, much more productive, And it happened because we took apart that job, whether they knew it or not. UPS and the drivers took apart the job, said these things get replaced. These things get augmented. Say we're doing the same thing, but we're doing it faster, better, more accurately, and these things get reinvented. There are things we can do as a driver now that we couldn't have even anticipated before. So that's the other point of this evolution that is often getting in the way. And it's kind of the reason for the new forthcoming book is the realization that This doesn't happen at the job level. It is not about automation replacing people in jobs. Almost never. It is about a combination of those people doing X percent of what they did before, the automation doing X percent of what they did before, and then it's X percent that's been reinvented.
1: And so this idea of taking jobs and deconstructing them into tasks and then kind of reassembling them into, quote, jobs, but keeping this very fluid, this to me is... Very analogous to what we talk about when we talk about the move from waterfall to agile in software development. And you know I use that metaphor in my business strategy class and my digital transformation class. And I, I typically say the essence of digital transformation is really all about modularizing work processes, modularizing business models, modularizing product development, and ultimately organizing around small teams with, you know, standardized interfaces like APIs. And, and I think everyone in the software world understands that, but this idea, you can map it onto pretty much everything, right? You can, if you want to be able to evolve, I mean, even in, in biology, right? If you want to evolve, you need a modular. Genetic architecture where you can have genes inserted in, you know, removed through, through evolution. Right. Yeah. And, And if we were like these, if, if all we could do is clone then, you know, there wouldn't be any evolution. Well, I mean, it's once you kind of understand this and how this facilitates uh, rapid change, then you gotta wonder, well, why haven't people done that in the past? Is it simply that the environment didn't change quickly enough? I mean, you talk about these trigger points and how it sometimes takes a trigger point or some kind of crisis or some kind of bottleneck for, for companies to get motivated to kind of reinvent how they think about work. I always say, like, if it ain't broke, fix it anyway. Why why is there so much inertia when we think about jobs? It kind of gets back to the original question, but everyone's experiencing a trigger point right now. Are there analogies to Agile and these other ways of thinking about organizing processes?
0: I think there are. Well, I I think it's very astute, Gregory, that, that this idea of modularization, we call it deconstructive atomization, whatever you want to call it, understanding the element and allowing the element to reconfigure is, fundamental, as you said, to so many different areas. You
1: use the term liquid, right? Which as a, as a reformed finance professor, that makes perfect sense to me, right, that you want to take, you know, I don't know, big chunk of real estate and, you know, make it liquid, and tradable and so forth. Right?
0: Right. Yeah. It's a, so that's a very good, again, a good analogy, one that, you know, I sort of was thinking of liquid as an ice tube melting and then you freeze it in a new way that you need, but it, yeah, very much liquidity and assets as well is often about taking something apart, a company, et cetera, looking at its elements, letting them live on their own, letting them be valued on their own. And then seeing if they reconfigure You to look at GE now deciding to break up, et cetera, you know, do they reconfigure back into the company or the job or whatever the element was that we would have before your idea that evolution happens, evolution actually happens at a very elemental level within organisms, but if your discipline can only see the organism. It, you know, and you don't have yet the elemental understanding, right? Before you have genetics, you have to just watch the creature thing, you know, and you say, I don't know what happened here, but it, you know, Darwin, you know, but, but if I look at the external manifestation, clearly there's a thing called evolution happening now yeah. decades, centuries go by and suddenly we say, oh, you know what, you know, what's going on. This is at a gene or genetic level here. And you can see it happening really fast at that level. Same thing with work. Okay. So that's what, I think that's exactly what we're getting at is that elemental understanding is what's necessary to see work evolve, whether it's a trigger point like automation, which we've talked about. Okay. But the book before the automation book with Rob and JC Thompson and David Creelit was called Lead to Work. And in that book, we offered our own perspective on work being done by people who are not employed with an employment contract the work beyond the employee, think of it that way, and lead the work, which meant to inspire leaders to lead all the whole workforce. In some organizations, more than half of the workforce is not employees. So again, that's a trigger point. And, and COVID kind of reinvented work for a lot of people who went remote to look more like a freelancer, more like a contractor. But were declined often by the fact that they They don't actually work here or they only work here as part of what they do. And again, it's usually not that a freelancer or a contractor comes in and does the whole job. It's that there are parts of the work that they can do better and, and to optimize, you've got to be able to have those elements live on their own. I was working with a pet food company and we were talking about what analogy could they use for their leaders to understand that they need to start thinking of work as more elemental. And. We came to the idea that we used to make pet food based on, let's say, how much bone, how much meat, how much vegetable. And that's all you have. And you just had to mix those things. And then we discovered nutrients. And now, because we know the nutrients inside each of those things, we have infinitely more understanding and ability to optimize against that. But, But to do it, we've got to let the nutrients live on their own and find ways to isolate them. That's what I think leaders, workers, and others, that's the analogy is to step back and be free to say, what if we just look at the work and we're not bound by our traditional jobs? And that's a very, I think, because of the systems we talked about before, it's hard because then you have questions of, well, now how do I pay you? What does a career look like? What do we call it on LinkedIn? And all of those systems tend to be job-based. So the idea of work without jobs isn't that all work is going to happen outside of jobs. It's more that thinking of work as jobs needs to be disrupted, and while it the stuff may coagulate back into jobs, they're going to be very different looking jobs, and very often the reconstruction will not be a job anymore. It'll be some other work arrangement or some combination, something like that.
1: Well, let's flip it around because if if jobs are going to be broken down into more elemental pieces, like tasks, then presumably what you're looking for in a employee is no longer kind of a credential that matches the job description, but rather you're looking for capabilities, you know, you're looking for skills. And that's going to be also kind of more, more granular or, or more elemental, you know, job descriptions and credentials are going to have to change. And of course, as an educator. We're we're all about the degree, right? You know, you get the degree. Right? And and we're seeing a shift in education where where you have these micro degrees and you have these kind of, you know, micro credentials. Are those two movements kind of just the flip sides of the same coin?
0: I think they are. I think they're they're very similar projects. And so if we thought about it graphically, you and I have talked a lot about the work, let's call it the work. And we could say on the one hand, or in maybe the traditional way, we define work as a job. We know that you have a job and that you are a worker because you have an, let's say, an employment contract. Okay. That's an extreme version. Maybe we also say you're a contractor. Okay. We can identify work in that box, but it's still pumped into things that look a lot like jobs or full-time equivalent. So that's the work job go to do, call it tax project, whatever we would call those internal things that are a part of the job. Then let's take another row. What about the worker? On the visual side, we have the worker defined as a job holder. When I ask you what work you do, you give me a job title. When I ask how many workers you have, you count up the jobs and job titles, et cetera, that's the, the traditional way that, that worker become a set of capabilities, I like to call them. The skill based attention, there's an immense amount of attention to skill, skill-based economies, et cetera, is an instinctive desire to anonymize this equation. So. That's why there's so much attention to skill, I think, is that the trigger points have revealed that you, you can't discuss workers and the, the worker resource, if we want to call it, unless you can break it down into something more animalized. I like capability better than skill for, we can talk about the semantic reasons for that, but I like the idea that leaders are already attentive to the notion of skill, that's something they need to pay attention to. And it's a movement of skill. Maybe then a movement of people through jobs. That is the key thing to think about. I think once you start to say, we're going to pay attention to skill, you're a step away from realizing you've got to atomize your job too. Okay. So that's those two. And then your degree point is probably another row where we would say in a traditional world, and this is pretty true in a lot of world, we conveniently show the qualification to do the work as a degree. And very often we associate that degree with a particular job that you're going to do, maybe a medical degree with the job of a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, maybe a a PhD with the job of a professor. And it's very convenient if you're hiring, because you can say, when you have this degree, you're in the club, you know, you have the qualification to do the same, we call a job. And so that's the math that we're making. As you say, on the less traditional side, what's emerging now is that People are saying, why can't we take apart that degree and, and what parts of that degree match up to what parts of the work that we need to do? And can't we call that part of the degree a capability? Let that be attached to the individual without waiting for them to get the degree. Ginny Romady, former CEO of IBM, is part of a, a very large initiative called 110. We've made a number of speeches, rightly noting that you can't possibly have enough cybersecurity people. If you deploy in cybersecurity work into these jobs and you say they need this degree to take that job, so she, as a CEO, has discovered that you can add up, and that you can hire people that are 80% good enough to be a cybersecurity person, reset the work to fit their capability, and then sort of top them up through a work experience. Community colleges and others respond and say, Hey, what if we did credit for that work? Well, now you take a few courses. You get some credit, you go work, you get some more credit. Eventually that may aggregate into what we'd call a degree, but it's not a two year stint at a community college or a four year stint at a traditional university. Before you can zero one thing and say, well, you were zero before. And now you got the degree, you stick to a one and now we can match. There's a lot in between that zero and one.
1: Well, there's certain disciplines where, I mean, this could unlock an enormous amount of value. I mean, if you think about doctors, for instance we often say that, you know, you need to have an MD in order to interpret a, a readout on a on a machine, right? I mean, you know, really? You need to know the Latin word for every ligament and you need to understand every single system. If you're diagnosing skin cancer, do you really need to understand how the colon functions or whatever? I mean, these kind of restrictions tend to make the delivery of healthcare, let's say, super, super expensive. Or, you know, if you want to have someone teach it basic statistics, you say, well, you got to have a PhD in in statistics, right? Really? Do you need a PhD in statistics to teach entry-level statistics to MBA students? Come on, really? So if we really started from what's the function here, what are we trying to do, then presumably it would it would open things up and reduce costs across the board, right? But I think a lot of people would be rightly concerned that their exclusivity would be in some ways reduced, right? I think that,
0: that the non-trivial part of it, I don't know, but I have the data on how much, but It does create a kind of guild, a kind of exclusivity, as you'd say, that, that I know that my work is, if I'm teaching introductory statistics, my work is protected because in order to get this work, you're going to need to get through this degree. I know that the degree isn't necessary, perhaps, perhaps even my university does, but it was about exclusivity. You know, that would be one reason to say, well, it's really not about the work itself. It's about exclusivity. And it could also be about the other stuff you're going to do. Yes, you teach introductory statistics, but... We don't want to analyze that out of the professor job. You could say that. And there's other things that really do require your PhD. So we're going to keep the job. This is, this is the kind of thought process I would hope organizations will do. Sometimes maybe often say, you know what, that job-based structure we have, was, We get it, John, if things are changing, but we don't have to change it everywhere. Where do you see the trigger points is where there's immense pressure. So one of my favorite examples in healthcare, for example, has very little to do with cost and everything to do with capacity. So there's a head of HR at Providence Health, Greg Till, is is someone I ran across as part of my association with heads of HR groups. And is an example in the book. So you think about COVID was the trigger point, but for decades and decades. Nurses. nurses. We know we have a nurse's shortage. We know that we have had a nurse shortage and COVID essentially put a blowtorch to it and, and illuminated it. There will never be enough nurse graduates to fill all the nursing jobs that are needed. There is way too much work in the health world. And that's just an equation that if you run it, it it doesn't add up. COVID sort of forced healthcare organizations, I think, to confront it maybe more quickly than they might have, and with more dire consequences. So think about the nursing job. So here it is, and it contains a lot of things over the years, like our statistics feature. Yes, it contains intubating, intubating patients, it contains helping patients who are unresponsive, all kinds of things like that, that we'll call top of life nurse work. You really do need the nurse degree and the nurse qualifications to do that. So it also includes making schedule. It also includes testing on patients that are fully responsive and very likely to say, I'm okay. Thank you very much. It includes taking temperatures. And so here comes COVID and Providence Health realizes that not only will there not be enough nurses forever, but they just can't start the patients with life-threatening diseases. If they took the job into nurse and say, those are the only people. And so part of it is the nurses were spending time doing stuff they didn't need to be doing. So let automation do schedule. Let even request take a temperature, let them check in on unresponsive patients and call a nurse if needed. So that sort of takes out these apps, these elements that don't require you to be a nurse. Okay, great. Now we've got our nurses focused on the things nurses can do. in an engineering sense, right, we've really optimized now. We've got that resource on stuff where that resource is required or makes a big difference, and we've found other resources to take off the stuff that is not where they don't make a big difference or it isn't required. But we still have more medical stuff than we can handle. So the next engineering equation, so to speak, would be where is a resource that can do the top of licensed nursing stuff, but it isn't in the nursing job? Well, you've got a bunch of... Hospital administrators that were often to the message from Providence was, "Don't get reluctance. and your your job as a hospital administrator will now include a day on the floor, innovating patients, et cetera, et cetera. So you not only remade the job of the hospital administrator to add top of line medical care, but you remade the nurse job to take away the stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And you remade the jobs of the people who received that work so that they were paid and rewarded and qualified to do things like take temperatures, et cetera. And so if you think of that old box, that was the nurse job and you take it apart and you spread the pieces out this way that I think, and it, and it was really not so much a cock thing with all due respect to your question. It's a really good one, but more the, the, just almost the only way to optimize the equation of how can we serve patients in this world? When the fact is there are not enough human beings to get these qualifications and and enter these jobs, if we keep it defined that way. Yeah,
1: one of the things I I tell my students is that every company is either going to become a software company or start thinking like a software company. An example of this is healthcare, right? You know, when the COVID crisis hit, we basically locked down the entire world in part because we were concerned about hospital capacity utilization, right? And we're like, hey, We can't have hospital capacity utilization exceed 100%. And so we need to spend trillions of dollars to keep that number down below 90%. And yet, two years in, we haven't increased hospital capacity by a single bed, (laughs) as far as I know, in the United States. And we haven't. How many nurses do we actually have? How many employees do we have in the healthcare system? As far as I know, the number hasn't gone up. And yet, when we look at something like Zoom, Zoom usage has gone up, what, 20x, 30x, 50x? And without a hitch, without a speed bump, right? I mean, yes, okay, we had some Zoom bombing. That was fixed in about 24 hours. And, you know, there are certain activities and, and functionalities that can scale and and then shrink. And there are others that seem to have these frictions. And, and I, I think a lot of people would argue, well, it's because it takes 10 years to create a doctor. So, but if you actually think about it in terms of tasks... You know delivering a tank of oxygen right you don't need an md to deliver a tank of oxygen or to take someone's temperature or, or whatever so I, I think that we're going to have to move to these more liquid ways of, of doing things and so for this you kind of talk about this work operating system and I, I really love this metaphor because i talk about education using the same language right we need an educational operating system where you know you come to university and we we lay down this operating system And then maybe, you know, you get updates periodically, you know, I'm thinking education needs to move from stock to flow, from product to service in ways similar to the way, you know, you talk about HR. When you're talking about the different components, I think you also aren't just talking about things like capabilities and and skills. You're also talking about the job elements, right? So you talk about the when, the where, and, and the how, and how to, how to match people's Capacities and preferences in those dimensions with the dimensions of the task. could could you jump into that a little bit? because I like how this you know people flow to the work and to flow to the work, you not only have to have the skills but you also have to have the this positioning capability
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And it that, that work operating system metaphor when we landed on it is one that Robin and I really like because it's sort of I think it captures the notion that a job-based perspective on work, a job holder in a degree, let's say that left side of my diagram, my magno diagram, it's so ingrained, did like the operating system of your computer. I mean, how often do we really think about the operating system anymore? You and I are probably old enough to remember when you thought a lot about it, because you had to put a dip in the computer, otherwise it was just tooth and nail until you put that dip in and you learned how to operate, but that's not true anymore. You know, Ed your Tesla or someone's Tesla and all that. So I like that, right? It's in the background and yet. It is a fundamental pillar. It teaches you how to think about your computer. Think about, you know, people switch from windows to iOS. I mean, it's, you know, they're just not, how does this work this way? why does it work that way? And the interface, partly because the interface is built on an operating system and you didn't realize how fundamental windows OS was to your life. And now you do. And so I like it because it's at that level that we need to think about disruptive and that, you know, that fundamental and hard. And it is the reason that this is difficult and I think needs to be described as we're doing in the book and needs to be called out for leaders. You could see it once you know it's out there, That atomization of the work, that thinking of a human being as a, an entire array of, of potential and actual capabilities. And it's an array that we match up and fluidly move. So it isn't just your qualifications for a job, it's the whole person. So it's in some ways even more humanistic and less mechanistic even though it sounds mechanistic and hey, we're going to match you to a job. And I a the metaphor to an operating system, Brad, where this is what I'm getting at is that it, it is really ingrained. So when you start to allow people to flow to the work, let's say you automate and you say, well, you know what, each of you, or the example we use in the book, is kind of a, a warehouse, right? And you all used to have your spot in the warehouse where you did your work. Now we're going to bring in these robots or these carts or whatever, and they're going to pick and pull and that kind of thing. And they're going to create points where all of you need to convert. And you need to unload or you need to fix an error or something like that. And, and yes, you're still going to have this job over here of maybe a one element of the pulling or the packing, because that needs to be a human, but you're going to flow when the work needs it, or we're going to pull people from another area, like a retail store and pull them into a warehouse where we have capacity changes. Now that all sounds great, but the operating system pays people based on that stuff that they were pulled within the fixed box. And their qualifications look like that and their job title on late day look like that. So once you start letting them flow, you end up having to return to HR now where the systems reside. How do we pay? Can I give this person a bonus? Job descriptions. Yeah. Can I give you a bonus for being a buck boy and coming over here and helping out with the weight staff? You know, and how long is it that you do that before you say, you know what? I'm getting paid at the bus void, but 30% of my time I'm over here helping out highly paid waiters and waitresses. And, you know, if you're not, they'll I get get paid in the tip. And so, oh, wait a minute. Do we have a system that can pay you that way? Do Can we give yeah. you credit for the skills that you're using over there? So what is the evolution? So basically, this is not a dig on HR. These systems mm-hmm. exist for everybody and they exist for a reason, but they require rethinking it. As soon as you start to let its fluidity happen, you're next door to asking, what do we mean by capability? Do we measure if the jobs you hold or the skills or the capabilities you have? And how would we know that? How well, granular? the level of a capability? Three levels of software capability? You know, right now we can just say enough software capability to hold this job and we know what we mean. But if we're going to let that person float to different software projects, we're going to have to pick them at some level of software capability. And so you see that, and again, this is not a dig on HR, but I hope up a call to act in a, an aspirational view that at the edges where it's automation or COVID, like nursing shortages, automation, et cetera. At those edges where work is changing and evolving faster than the operating system can handle, the, the traditional way. These are the questions that are going to get asked. And then I'll finish. There's an interesting phenomenon now called internal talent and internal gig work, that sort of thing. Mutilever is a, a very rightful poster child for this, but there's eight, told, and gloat, and every HR software provider, there's a lot of attention to this. And what it is, is I set up a platform inside your company, and your employees can take on projects, just projects, and your leaders can post those projects to this platform, like an internal freelance platform. Famous stories art, Unilever. Here's an accountant. You know, they love their accounting job at Unilever, but there was a project in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they're passionate about that. So they volunteered for that project and they did a great job. And over time, they did a number of those projects and pretty soon the diversity, equity, and inclusion group knew them and they switched to a job over there. A rightful celebration of the freedom and the sense of purpose and all that that enables. And look, we've atomized work. We're doing projects, right? All that. Almost every one of those that I've encountered is voluntary. So you don't really run into the pay and the title and the qualifications operating system yet. And I think that's one reason they're so popular is that they're allowing, and again, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's a creative way to sort of skirt the operating system by making it all voluntary and it experiment with this in a way that doesn't require a wholesale change, but, but sooner or later we will.
1: The way I was able to get this HR class smuggled into the curriculum was to call it HR analytics, right? Cause you know, people analytics and so forth, we all know, right, this is a growing field and what enables all this granularity really is our ability to measure things more precisely and, and use data and a couple areas where I'm intrigued. One is these matching platforms, right? So we think about Upwork as a kind of an external matching platform and the internal matching platforms that you describe a couple of implications. One is I think that the, you know, the boundaries of the firm are dissolving in many ways, whether it's an internal or an external, you know, you just plug it in in the same way that a software company will use APIs to outsource some things insource others and kind of just do it, whatever makes sense at the moment. Right. So there's that, but in terms of matching. We're still kind of matching using the, like an ontology that's human crafted, right? So we say, Hey, I need someone who knows Python, or I know I need somebody who is a go-getter or whatever. You know, you have these, these categories that, you know, are humanly constructed and that's kind of how Facebook originally started. You know, you want to advertise, you say, I want to advertise to lawyers, or I want to advertise to people who live in California. And then ultimately Facebook developed an algorithm that has, you know, 8,000 features and they just say, we think. This person has a feature vector that'll appeal to your product and and it's all a big black box. I can imagine we're going to move to a, a world where, you know, this accountant will just be sitting there and he'll get tapped on the shoulder and he'll say, you know what, we, we think you're a great fit for DEI. Let's move you on over there. And, you know, he might not even know, like, wait, why? And and then turns out to be a really good match. Netflix says that anybody who segments their market by gender and age is, you know, living in the Stone Age. Instead, they use these... Segment of one analytics. And then also, I guess the same thing is true with performance evaluations. When I go back to my restaurant days, we had this fantastic maitre d who saw everything. You know, he could just survey the whole floor and be like, all right, this bus boy is doing the waiter's work. I'm going to make sure that he gets paid more. And, you know, waiters got to put something out of his pocket. But then you move to like a university, and (laughs) I could talk all day about universities and how backward we are, but 95% of the work that, you know, if it's not like a published paper or a teaching evaluation, like it's invisible, nobody knows you're doing it. Presumably when we instrument work, everyone's got their wristwatch like Amazon and so forth, then we'll probably be better able to both figure out what you bring to the table and furthermore, what you're capable of, and then kind of what you're actually doing so we can design more complicated reward systems. I mean, is that, do you think that's kind of where we're headed?
0: I do. I think, that is a very good representation of how probably the most edgy fluid work will start to operate. So first let me make the point, cause people hear us talk about this and we say where it's headed. And, and of course there's an immediate counter argument that says, but I can point out to a lot of work that'll never look like that. And that's, that's absolutely true. Those people are not wrong. However, well, there is work, you can see it a lot right now in software because software has had decades to evolve its way. And a lot of thought were would devolve from platforms. You know, where programmers work as freelancers or contractors or something like that. You see it now in patent law, where the very best patent lawyer for certain things is the one that works on a platform. Because if you hired them, it blunt their edges because you don't have enough of that kind of work, and they just yeah. they have to do forty hours of something else. You know, but if you let them stay on the platform and work for your competitor, when they come back to you for a project, they're terrific. Yeah. Right. So
1: lawyer as a service.
0: Lawyer as a Service, and not all, not all law work could be embedded in Lawyer as a Service. There's a lot of law work that you could indeed rep with a person who is in a law firm who has a job there, but not all of it. And if you make the mistake of trying to yank and patent work, you know, that you're going to suboptimize and maybe to your detriment because somebody else smarter than you knows, hire the lawyer that's on the platform. So I think platform and have since probably for about the last 10 years, starting with lead the work are an interesting metaphor for this. They find a way to price work in a deconstructed level. They find a way at the cap level. They find a way to recognize capability at a deconstructed level and the levels evolve as the need evolves. So how many levels of Python do we need to know? Well, we'll start with three. And if it turns out that we can't do the matching we need to do, we'll make it four, we'll make it five, we'll make it six. And that evolves, I think in part, out of the transactions of the system being monitored and integrated by an algorithm or a human. So yeah, one can envision a kind of Netflix for work. Again, I've been after my HR colleagues at Netflix and Google and Microsoft and Facebook to get started on this engine that will watch the transactions you and I engage in and will then map work offers to us, the way it can map offerings of products, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know the solution, but I wouldn't have known the solution for products either, or for movies either, you know, and so my feeling is that it isn't about asking, well, tell me what your solution is. It's about asking where are the engines that already do this? And, And what would the to your point about analytics, what is the measurement, the units of measurement? that would be needed to feed an algorithm like this to produce the kind of hopefully socially optimal not exploitive but socially optimal ability to very precisely match work to individual. to so give them for-
1: well i think about it from a university perspective you know we spend four years or two years whatever with with a student and then at the end we we say yep they got a degree with a 3.7 i mean that that's three bytes of data facebook gets that every the hundredth of a second like why can't we deliver a, a data packet that's a couple gigabytes about this person that we've spent four years with that gives a kind of a richer understanding of their leadership abilities their ability to work with others their their creativity their agility whatever i mean all that stuff we should be able to somehow figure out if we're going to spend all this time with them i mean it's it's a long way off
0: i haven't thought about this too much the algorithm needs to be fed to point about analytic netflix pick your consumer services company, right? But they do have clicks. So we, we choose to purchase the product. We choose to look at certain products and you can watch that, even if we don't purchase, you can watch where we look at, where we go next, et cetera, et cetera. And algorithms can build that up into a feature set, both to the person and the services we're offering. Again, often much to the creation of bubbles, because we can also be fed only what's interesting or what the clickbait that we're interested in. But with work, the systems, the operating system, you don't click that often. You know, like your students, art students that are great leaders, well, they've been using all along their college career. They've been choosing leadership positions. They've been they've been proving whether or not they did well at those positions. And in a world where that was a product, they'd probably be clicking on each one of them. So you want to be leadership of this club? Great. do that. Purchase that, in a way, with your uh, resource. So it's not money, it's your capability. I don't know they're quite advocating that, but for the analogy to work completely, for the engineering and algorithm analogy to work completely, you would need more complete information about those invisible work click that people do. Uh whole caregiving for me is one of the perfect examples that COVID has revealed of an invisible set of work that an enormous army of people do voluntarily because their family members are helping out or whatever, that is unrecognized in the healthcare world because there aren't clicks. You know, they don't get paid. They don't take a job. I don't know that I have the solution, but I think an element of this system will be to provide the algorithm with more detailed information in some natural way. As natural as it is to click on a news story or a movie or a product.
1: Now, I think there's a lot of pushback against HR analytics. There's a lot of pushback against instrumentation of work. There's pushback against the gig economy. And I think a lot of the pushback, again, this is separate from the resisting automation. I think it's, there's a lot of pushback that goes all the way back to the days of Frederick Taylor. And I guess the concern is that by making this more scientific and granular, what we're doing is we are kind of dehumanizing people and, and just turning them into a, a series of outputs. So how, how would you respond to that if people are, I mean, one aspect of this is that people, their identity is tied up in their job and their sense of community comes from their employer. If you replace a job with kind of a floating portfolio of tasks and, and then you replace an employer with a rotating cast of counterparties, does this undermine people's sense of identity or does this open up the door to maybe better forms of identity? How do you see this happening?
0: You know, it's interesting I think the answer can be both to your question. Number one, what is going to happen as this evolves is that we are going to have exploitation and we are going to have empowerment. That is an absolute, I have no problem making that prediction because we see it right now and the differences often go to things that are not in the algorithm. So. My colleague, Jonathan Donnelly and I wrote a, well, a little piece for Flow Management Review about leading in a world without jobs. Jonathan was the former head of leadership for Unilever for many, many years. That's where he and I worked together. And our point was his first reaction to the book was this to decubilizing. You know, you're just going to, ultimately you have a system where every person gets a click from a computer and says, stop working on that. I found the more optimal thing for you to work on over here, you know, and, and you have no control, et cetera. And as we talked about it, and as really as Johnson thought about it, he said, you know what, I'm realizing this is going to ride on an even more humanistic set of approaches. Leaders are going to see a fluid set of workers come through them, and they're going to have to pay much more attention to who they are as a leader because they won't have the crutch of my job is a leader, and your job is in these boxes, and you report to me. So I don't have to think that much about how good a leader I am or whether you can make choices because it's all determined. And once a year we talk about it. Well, now I'm going to see a hundred people and they're going to be with me maybe a couple of months or three months or something like that. And I need to coordinate with other leaders now about what are our values here? What is our approach to the way we deal with workers, et cetera? So we're going to see both. That's one thing. So there is, and there are examples, the Unilever One about someone going out and doing DEI. There are examples where this atomization and this more fluid approach produces immense opportunities to pursue purpose, immense opportunities to better fit workers in total to the kinds of work that's available in society, uncovering work that is invisible and offering in a market where we can see it and value it, et cetera. So I think those things, the agility that you mentioned, the ability of organizations to quickly move when automation happens, to quickly move when new markets open up and they don't have jobs that fit them, but there's people out there that could do the work. I think we're going to see All of that is going to be a part of what we see going forward. The other piece is that there's a social contract here that is also going to get pushed on pretty quickly at a level, it is easier to do this in a world where the society you live in already takes care of things like healthcare intentions and that sort of thing, particularly healthcare, much easier than if you have to now recontract for that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think the other big opportunity is that people can match better with things that fit in with their lives and how they want to organize their lives. If you think about just the gig economy, a lot of people say, hey, this is not a real job. It's like, well, you know, if you say to someone, you got to work 40 hours or you got to work zero hours. I don't see how that's better than saying, hey, if you want to work eight hours, that's great. You know, work eight hours. If you need to take care of your kids in the morning, then work in the afternoon, right? So the flexibility in terms of the when and the where and the how and kind of dividing it up into different components, and then giving those components to the folks that are most able to, or, or willing to, to take them on, that can be liberating.
0: Yeah, it can. And I think you're right. What I didn't talk about is this idea of a gallery place and an identity. And so you mentioned, you know, what am I part of if I don't, I'm not part of this company, I just kind of float among companies. Who am I, if I don't say I fit here in this organization and that's called a job. But what do I do when, I mean, you know, I see these people every day that I do when we all have a job and it requires that we be here. I think COVID has helped us understand that there are new ways to build community. That said, it's also helped us understand the traditional system was so embedded that those alternative ways of being remote or being fluid are difficult, much more difficult than just taking a job. One quick example of community, and it doesn't really answer, I think that I'm hopeful and I think we already see that humans find ways to become a community if they're given the opportunity, even when it doesn't involve going to a place and doing work with other humans that are nearby. One of my favorite examples for a long, long time is a video of people who are working on kind of precursor to Upwork, PopCovl. And basically they have a conference every year. These are programmers and logo designers, and they all work as freelance people and they have a conference they used to back in the day. And you'd go in person to Las Vegas and you would fit in an auditorium and the top programmers that you knew because you're on the platform would be on stage and be given a top programming problem and you'd watch them solve it over out. And there's this wonderful snippet of this guy sitting in the chair of the auditorium and he's expounding on how. Topcoder is my community and all of my best friends are on Topcoder. And if it weren't for Topcoder, I wouldn't be connected to these people. And so you think about the power of platforms to do that, to break people who otherwise could never work together and allow them to work together, to elevate people who are good at the work and in a way, make them celebrities. So there is indeed a culture here. There is indeed a community here, even though none of these people work for or define their community as a company so again it's not a complete answer by any means Gregory but it's one of those snippets that tells me there is the potential here if we understand that kind of community building to form communities even in a world where we don't have the let me say the easy operating system that your community is automatically your job and this say we call your employer
1: well certainly true for academics right you know we go to the well, we used to go to our conferences and, you know, you'd know some of your colleagues in other universities far better than you knew some of your coworkers at, at your own university.
0: And often remotely, you know, I mean, often huge colleague relations get built up by writing a paper together with someone in a country or a region that neither of you could afford to travel to meet in person. And you'd say, who's your closest colleague? And somebody says, well, I live in the U.S. My closest colleague is in, how that? Something like that.
1: Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. We've got the new book, which is called Work Without Jobs, and a couple others. Thanks so much, John. appreciate for joining me.
0: My pleasure. Happy to do it, Gregory. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Thank you for tuning in
0: to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.